بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam okay so we have explored al fatiha and then we had the extensive discussion yesterday on alif lam mim and so now we're getting into this uh, this subsection of of uh, the beginning of Al-Baqarah. And so to give you even more of a sense of how the beginning of the surah operates, let me pull up this whiteboard and someone nod, let me know you can see the whiteboard. Yes, very good. Okay. So here, so the beginning of Al-Baqarah. We said that the introduction is ayahs one through 39. So ayah one we had was alif lam mim. And now ayahs two through 20 will be models of belief and rejection. Rejection. And then within that, so, Uh, ayahs two through five will be the people of taqwa. Ayahs six through seven will be the people of Uf. Ayah two, eight through 16 will be the people of nifaq. And then ayahs 17 through 20 will be a summary and metaphors of the above. Okay, so that's what we have ahead of us for for uh, perhaps the rest of Ramadan, uh, but we'll see how far we get, inshallah. So we're in this subsection, ayah two through five. And let me just pull up the page of the Quran so we can all see it together. Um, or it looks like some of you are still writing, so I'll take a moment to get the screen set up. And does anyone still need the screen? Well, we'll be coming back to this anyway. But um, yeah, okay. So, okay, and so let me know, you can see the Quran screen. Yes, okay, very good. So we had Alif Lam Mim, and then we have so common translation, this is a description in which there is no doubt containing guidance for those who are mindful of God. To take this piece by piece, that is the book, the kitab, which I'm not going to get translated as the book. No doubt, la raib, fihi in it, hudan, guidance, Lil Mutakin for those people who have taqwa. Okay. Now, first a small point. You all see the three dots here? Um, uh, here's oops, here's Fihi, and then there's three dots right before, three dots after it. Can you all see that? Or if I make it bigger. These two sets of three dots. 
this is uh, this is a special type of, of of punctuation, and the principle is that you stop at one or you stop at the other. Monica, you stop at one or you stop at the other. So it's sort of like a special semicolon, which means that in this one sentence, we actually have two sentences built in at the same time. So let's take that piece by piece. So jumping back to the whiteboard. And once again, let me know you can see the whiteboard. Okay, very good. Okay, so I uh, two, two. Good. One way to read it is this is the kitab. No doubt. Semicolon. In it is guidance for those who have taqwa. In it is guidance for those of taqwa. Secondly, to read this, both are 100% uh, uh, consistent and correct. This is the kitab that has no doubt in it, semicolon after the in it, it is guidance for those who have taqwa. All right, so what is the difference between these two readings? Anyone looking through? This is the this is the kitab, no doubt. In it is guidance for those who have taqwa, or this is the kitab that has no doubt in it. It is guidance for those who have taqwa. Simple question about English. What's the difference between the two? Anybody? And Leith, I see you speaking. I don't know if you're speaking to us on mute or you're speaking to your imaginary No doubt friend. in the first uh, sentence. It's uh, it makes a little bit difference that right? it says this is the kitab and then say no doubt, right? Yeah. Um, so the no doubt is explaining to this is the kitab, right? Okay, this is the kitab, no doubt this is a kitab. Okay. Uh, this is how I understood. Okay. Uh, and then what and, is the second one saying? And then it says this is the kitab that has no doubt in it, okay. right? So, like, um, it's, uh, that has no doubt in it. So it means it is it is explaining a bit that this kitab has no doubt in it. Yeah. So a little bit uh, um, um, change of like understanding. Okay. Okay. Uh, Leith, what are you going to say? Um, I actually didn't have a point. It was Stephanie, but she's trying to log in, so just need a minute. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So. We'll just assume you're talking to your imaginary friend, Penelope. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, one person has texted me saying the second one is saying that the Quran has no doubts in it. It is all certain. Sure, all these things. Uh, Shayla. 
So I think, um, you know how you were talking about the names of the um, surahs being the identity of them. I think the first one is kind of speaking to the identity of the uh, Quran. It's, this is, it's saying this is really the kitab. And the second one is talking about the content of it, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. it's kind of presuming that we know that this is the kitab. And the second way is, you know, really emphasizing that the content is for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, all these, all these uh, 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 express the first half. So what's the difference in the second half in this question for everybody? In it is guidance for those who have taqwa, it is guidance for those who have taqwa. So Stephanie's saying punctuation changes the meaning. And so explain further, where is, where is the meaning changing? So what do you all think about the second half after the semicolon? Well, after the semicolon, so either either the book itself is guidance for those who have taqwa, or you can find guidance in it uh, for those who have taqwa. So the book is guidance, or up here, the book contains guidance. Yeah. So a subtle difference, uh, uh, but the fascinating part is that both of these are simultaneously uh, the correct text with this small shift in, in punctuation. And so either way you read it is sound. And so now let's talk about some of these other terms. The word kitab uh, is almost always in contemporary usage translated as book. Uh, I'm going to prefer prescription, prescription. Prescription also has the idea of being written. And kitab could also be writing. So what is the kitab referring to? Our default would be to assume that it's referring to the Quran. And that is the majority reading. Also of the reading is the idea that everything is written and you're going to see it manifest without any doubt on the day of judgment. So majority reading, majority interpretation is that this is talking about the Quran and introduction to what we're gonna see in the rest of the text. And at the same time, another reading is that this is actually speaking about what is written for you on the day of judgment meaning including the day of judgment itself. If the day of judgment itself is doubtless. Now we can all understand that the Quran contains guidance and is guidance. How would the day of judgment contain guidance or be guidance? What do you all think? And it's very, it's not that different from how the Quran is guidance or contains guidance. What do y'all think? The question might be confusing, so let me write it. So kitab, common understanding is that it's referring to the Quran. A secondary understanding is that it's referring to the day of judgment and what happens on the day of judgment. So how would the day of judgment be a source of guidance? One, it could be that 
the the guidance is for the days day of judgment. Okay. Right. In order to be able to 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 be successful on the day of judgment, you need a guidance. Okay. So so let's make this even simpler. Think back to our discussions about suffering and about the day of judgment and such. What does or what is the impact on me of a belief in the day of judgment? What is the consequence? Of believing, and we're here. We're talking about believing in the Muslim version of the Day of Judgment. Believing in the Day of Judgment. How would you answer this question? Like you, you got to be, you got to be selecting the to to go into paradise, not in hell, right? Okay. So <laughs> that, that that is first thing. Okay. Then, in order to go to the paradise. You you got to have uh, uh, to fulfill the criteria okay. to be able to go to the paradise. Okay. So right. essentially, what you're saying is, yeah, being what, upright uh, person, mm -hmm. all the characteristics, right? So it's going to affect my conduct. Yeah. Which means it's going to affect my choices. I have to change myself. Potentially, have to change myself. Maybe I'm already off. Awesome, yeah. Right. And so, likewise, Shayla is saying that we're preparing for it. We and Wasim is saying uh, that we'll be accountable for it and such. Yeah. And so, just having a belief in the day of judgment is then uh, it, we are inferring a proper way to conduct ourselves. Does it also give us a lens through which to view the choices of others that are out of our control and just Absolutely. kind of society at large? Absolutely. Right. You know, so, so a lot of discussion yesterday after the verdict was, okay, is this justice or is this just the first step? What have you? And the bottom line is whatever the, the, the verdict was in, in the, the Derek Chauvin trial about the, the murder of George Floyd, no matter what the verdict was, George Floyd is going to get full justice on the day of judgment. And Derek Chauvin is going to get full justice on the day of judgment. Right. Which on the one hand could give every one of us uh, some amount of relief. So then there was a story yesterday, later in the day of the 16 year old who called the police because he was, there was a, a, a knife fight going on and then the end result was that she gets shot and killed um, like by four four gunshots, right? I don't know too much of the story beyond that, but the point is that in that case, she's going to get full justice on the day of judgment, and the shooter is going to the cop is going to get full justice on the day of judgment. So, and on the one hand, it could give us a certain amount of relief that the oppressed will get their due, and the oppressors will also get their due. On the other hand, it might increase our sense of responsibility. What's my responsibility in each of these cases if I'm witnessing something wrong happening? And so that goes uh, to relate to Wasim's point about accountability. So yeah, uh, Leith, I would say absolutely in terms of other people and their choices, it would affect that. And so all these big points that we had in Al-Fatiha, each and every one of them is a source for guidance. So the simple belief in the Day of Judgment itself is a source for guidance.
Because think of the opposite. What is the consequence of not believing in a day of judgment? It means I'm free to do whatever I want. I can live whatever way I want. Uh, Asha saying, it's so difficult to see your own oppressors not getting what you feel they deserve in this life. Absolutely. It is comforting to know that they will make every, Allah will make everyone accountable. That the belief in the day of judgment can also be a relief for our own hearts when we're thinking of people who seem to get away with doing wrong. And on the other hand, it should also increase trepidations in our heart for all the times where we may have gotten away with something and we don't even realize it. So a small point, what is the proper attitude I should have regarding the day of judgment? It should be a balance of hope and fear. And often Sunday School Islam uh, teaches all kinds of fear and then the, the, the Sunday schools that are run by their children teach all kinds of hope. But the point is that you wanna have a balance of hope and fear. To the point that we're even taught, this is not by the Prophet, peace on this is taught by Imam al-Hazali, that if you found out that only one person was going to go to hell out of all of human civilization, you should have the fear that it's you. And if you were taught, if you were to find out that only one person was going to paradise in all of human civilization, you should have hope that it's you. So, so in terms of, of, of the day of judgment itself, it should have consequences on my behavior. Meaning I want to try to see it as no doubt. And a way to think about that is how real does it truly seem to me? So if I ask you, how real does tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. seem to you? How vivid is it? For most of us, we can picture it really well because we have the experience of today, we have the experience of yesterday, we have the experience of the day before. So when you think of the day of judgment, is it that vivid? Okay. If not, then try to imagine whatever is going on, if Allah wills for you to live this long, uh, you 10 years from now, so the year 2031, 1452, how vivid is that for you? If you were to imagine what you're doing in life, so forth and so on, is the day of judgment that vivid for you? Because the level to try to get to is for it to be as vivid as the situation you're in awake right now. That's a level of faith. But at least intellectually, if you were to keep imagining yourself in the future, how far in the future does the day of judgment seem? The way to answer to that is, all right, if you were to imagine yourself 40 years from now, so in the year 2061, is the day of judgment at least that vivid? And so you want to try to keep bringing it closer and closer to yourself. So if it's too hard to picture it as real and as vivid as this moment, Chicago Times 620 on April 21st, then can you at least make it as vivid as tomorrow morning? Because it is no doubt. That is, in terms of the future, that is the only thing that is absolutely certain about your future and my future. Everything else is not as certain as the day of judgment. Uh, how can, as Stephanie is asking a fundamental question, how can we achieve that with our human limitations, mentally speaking and spiritually speaking? That's part of the process that we're going through as we go through the Quran. And so fundamentally, the, the exploration through the Quran 
And the way we're taking it is not to acquire knowledge, but to embody what is being taught. And so it's happening in little, little tiny doses uh, as we go through this, this Ramadan. So little by little. Right now, uh, think of it as introducing the idea and then step by steps, getting closer to making it uh, a reality. Will you reach that state by the time we finish Ramadan? Probably not with my teaching, but Allah knows best. Okay, so that is looking at the Day of Judgment. And so what should be the conduct that the Day of Judgment inspires? That should be taqwa. And so now let's define what we mean here by taqwa. So taqwa is often translated in all kinds of different ways. And the most etymologically correct in terms of the actual word itself, it's to shield yourself. So waqa yaqi, the idea is that you're shielding yourself. But then what does that mean? It means that you're being God conscious. And you're always on guard. So why do we call fasting or Ramadan the month of taqwa? Because fasting is literally walking taqwa. Because you're always on guard. I can't eat, I can't drink, I gotta remember not to eat or drink. Even when I'm doing wudu, I'm extra conscious of, you know, is any water going down? You know, if I'm not able to fast, I still have this hyper level of consciousness because it's Ramadan. And so you are on guard. So, so Afna is asking, is there a difference between being uh, God-conscious and God-fearing? So taqwa, uh, colloquially, we often translate as fear of God. And I think that is insufficient. I think that sort of misses the mark a little bit because there's other terms in the Quran that are referring to fear of God, like hauf is, is fear of God. And likewise, um, uh, irhab is also a type of terror of God, which we also find all of these in the same surah. And so you can say taqwa is in the same universe, uh, but uh, I think being on guard and God conscious is closer. And let me know if that makes sense. Uh, and, and then Judy's asking, is this uh, like the potential guardians in the grave? Uh, that would be a little bit different yeah, in terms of the experience of the grave. So here, think of it as just a state of being, but I might be misunderstanding your question. Uh, isn't fear of him contained within being conscious of him? Yeah, absolutely, but so is hope. And so what else are we then saying that this is guidance for those who have taqwa? So now we have two levels of guidance here. One is how to get taqwa. And the other is the guidance deeper for those who already have taqwa. So now we have a goal on what we want to accomplish. We want to develop taqwa. So to put some of these other terms together. So we're gonna have another term. Uh, so we have taqwa, 
and pretty soon we're gonna have another term, Iman, and we'll define this in some more detail in a moment. But essentially think of Iman as being in your heart. So think of Iman as the jewel. And think of Takwa as the act of guarding your Iman. And so Iman, so far, we're just going to translate as faith. We're going to give it more definition, uh, actually, probably in the next ayah. But the idea here is that this jewel that you have in your heart, which is your relationship with God, this is your Iman, that you don't want to lose, and so you keep it protected, and that is Takwa. Takwa is the process of protecting your Iman. Okay, any questions so far? So guarding implies action, not just belief. Exactly. Yeah. And how does Iman, how do Iman and Taqwa relate to Fitra? So Fitra here would be your natural primordial state, meaning you're born with Iman. And then uh, you're learning to develop Taqwa to protect your Iman. Could a non-Muslim be God conscious? Absolutely. Ask any of the converts in the in the room uh, if they if a non-Muslim can be God conscious, and I think they'd all say yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got anyone else's questions. If I've missed anyone's questions, please uh, let me know. Okay. So so this becomes our our goal. We have a goal which is to develop taqwa. And then now, if we speak of the more common meaning of the of kitab, which is prescription or the or the Quran, then I think it makes much more sense that the Quran is guidance. And another point I'd like you to consider is that the uh, uh, point that I've already made before that very often when we're imagining Islam, we're imagining it through the lens of obligations. But out of six thousand some ayahs, six thousand some verses barely 10%, probably 7%, and according to other readings, 5% are actually instructions. Meaning where Allah is saying, do this, don't do this. And what does that mean? What is the whole rest of the Quran about? Most of it is focused on how you think, how you perceive of how reality operates. What is your role in the world? So most of the Quran is straightening out your thinking. Now, there's something else we can infer from this idea of taqwa. So taqwa is a shield, and that's what we're being prescribed. If we are being prescribed to shield ourselves, And then what does it mean to shield yourself? It means at the core of it is that you're keeping your consciousness on Allah. Then what is this saying about the world? What, 
does this mean about life? So if we're being prescribed to wear a shield, so to speak, the shield of God consciousness, then what is that saying about life, how life operates? What do y'all think? Or the design, a design of life or design of the world? Any thoughts, reflections, guesses? Normally at this moment, if I wasn't fasting, I'd get my glass of water, I'd start sipping, and usually some student would speak right away before I would finish my water out of fear that I might finish without someone answering. So yeah, an attack on Iman, a series of tests that part of the design of this world is to hit you. That if you are being prescribed to wear a shield, then part of the design of this world is that it's a series of arrows pointed at you. So it has both factors. So um, opposing factors and those factors that may will help you as well, right? So it has and all so, the factors. So really to, so what I'm saying that, so life has all the factors, opposing factors like that will oppose you, like, like, uh, like say like it will hit you and it will challenge you, it will test you. Uh, and then you, you will have the solution of those factors too within the same life to be able to 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 create the shield you mean using the faith yes. and, and 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 do the practices and do such deeds in the same life right mm -hmm. yes all of those points and so all of our tests you can sum down to five types of tests meaning every moment of your life is a test, and I'm going to use the second word in this. Uh, well, I'll give you the word right now. Doors. Every moment of your life is one or more of these five. One is a test of struggle. I'm not giving these in any particular order. It's more like the, it's just whichever way seems to be most dramatic and exciting. Yeah. One is going to be is the test of struggle. which we might also call the test of loss. Another is the test of ease. That is also a set of arrows pointed at you. Another is the test of obedience. And another is the test of difficult decisions. So there are moments in your life where you had to choose between option A and option B, and it was really difficult. There are moments in your life where you had to choose between option A and option B, and both were bad options. And that will continue throughout the course of life. And so how then do you pass this 
So you pass the test of struggle by persevering through. Sabr in Arabic is a little bit different than Sabr in Urdu, and I can't speak to how it fits in terms of Farsi. So Sabr in Urdu is basically to be passive and patient. And in Arabic, it's more active. So it's more like fortitude. But not only that, you're keeping a good opinion of God. So think of what a bad opinion of God would be. Oh, God isn't there for me. God is hating me and all that. No, you're keeping a good opinion of God even through your struggle. How do you pass the test of ease? Anyone? You're all experts on this now based on the last surah. Of those who've done one of the first homework assignments with gratitude. Sure. And again, with all of these, keeping a good opinion of God. How does that apply here? It's easy to start thinking that you're entitled to the, to whatever ease you have. I worked so hard, I deserve this. You know, or I've gone through so many struggles, I deserve this. So yes, exactly. Uh, uh, we'll see our response to prosperity and adversity both. Obedience, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You obey. Plus, good opinion of the law. Difficult decisions. You make a decision to the best of your ability. Again, good opinion of the law. For each of these, there are also some prayers to help us. Multiple prayers. Yeah, let's give this a different color. Example difficult decisions, the prayer is istihara. And the translation of istihara is literally you're searching for good. The prayer to make in struggle is Surah Al Qasas, Surah 28, I 24. And you can almost call this the prayer of being at rock bottom. This is the prayer of Moses, peace be upon him. And he is saying to Allah, I'm in need of any good you send down to me. I mean, there's multiple prayers for each of these. I'm just giving you one to, to help out. Prayer for gratitude is in that homework assignment for those who are doing it. Surah Al-Ahqaf, Surah 46, Ayah 15. This is literally, my Lord, guide me to be grateful for what you bestowed upon me and upon my parents and guide me to work good deeds to your service and know that I'm one of those who bows to you in Islam. And then there's numerous prayers for our obedience. One is, of course, Al-Fatiha itself. Right, because we said that the path of the straight path is the path of those who obey Allah. Another is what is commonly regarded as the prayer of someone who is in debt, but the text of it is 
Oh Allah, make easy for me what is halal and make hard for me what is haram. And then we have the fifth test. The fifth test is for all of the times that I have fallen short on the first four. And so how do I pass the test of forgiveness? It's to ask for forgiveness. And again, keeping a good impression of Allah. And then again, there are numerous prayers for forgiveness, and the easiest is literally Astaghfirullah. So the point here is that <clears throat> we're speaking of taqwa as this approach to develop, which is to put a shield on, which is to make yourself God conscious, which is then saying that part of the design of life is that you have arrows that are pointed at you. And so these are the different types of arrows that are pointed at you. And so the word we often use is tests. But at the same time, what is a test actually? It's a door that Allah has given you to get closer to him. So when Allah Ta'ala gives you, when God Most High gives you a moment of ease, like, for example, what most of us probably have that allows us to sit here in class in this moment. He's given a door to get closer to him. And then it may be that some of us at this exact same time are going through some, some heavy personal struggles. There, he's also given a door to get closer to him. So every moment of your life is a test. Every moment of your life, every one of those tests is a door. So it's literally doors upon doors upon doors to get closer to him. And naturally, as part of being human and making mistakes and this and that, I'm going to fall short many, many, many times. And thus we have the option for forgiveness for all the times, even if I've fallen short 100% of the time. Right? We have a teaching that you're going to get tired of committing sins before Allah will be tired of forgiving you. And so this would be one way to think of the point of taqwa, that the more I have consciousness of God, the more I'm going to recognize all the things that are happening in my life are willful by design by Allah. Is that the point we've been repeating, right? That, that when we're speaking of Allah as being ar-Rahim, having a unique relationship of rahma with you, that he is giving you 100% focus according to how he has designed you. And thus everything that happens in your life is by design specifically for you. And some of those things are things that you want and some of those things are things that you don't want, but they're both coming from Allah. And so what is the, the key theme here? No matter what happens in life, keep having a good impression of Allah. That's literally 50% of the, of, the, of the challenge.
Okay. Any questions about this? So here we've talked about the, the first ayah. And so then the Quran is going to give us more on how to develop taqwa and more on how life operates and then more beyond that. So, so continuing tomorrow, as we see ayahs two through five, we'll be speaking more about taqwa itself. And then we'll be speaking about two opposites of taqwa, kufr and nifah. And we'll define these terms as we get there. Okay. So, uh, new homework assignment. And, and, and so I'll give you all the pieces to this assignment. This is the same assignment that I gave to the other class for those who are willing and able. Uh, number one, find a copy or translation of the Quran that you're comfortable writing in. And if you understand the Arabic, then you, I mean, if you truly understand the Arabic, then use a, a, an actual mushaf of Arabic, but whatever works for you in, in your most comfortable language. Number two, starting from the first page, meaning starting from Al-Fatiha, and doing at least 20 ayahs a day, underline every reference to Allah. So whether it's the name Allah, an attribute referring to Allah, or a pronoun referring to Allah underlying every reference to Allah and try to do that every day. The assignment itself is literally about 60 seconds long. You're welcome to do more than 20 eyes a day, but try not to do less. If you're reading a translation that has everything in paragraphs, then complete the paragraph. If you're near the end of a surah, then complete the surah. If you miss five days, don't feel like you have to make it up. Just restart wherever you are. If you can be pretty consistent, you will finish the entire book in six to nine months. And then uh, what you will see is a couple things happening. Uh, scanning or reading, I'm saying reading. It's very easy just to turn this into a scanning, but I'm suggesting try to actually read. Yeah, good question. And uh, what is this doing? <laughs> we are saying that the whole focus of the Quran is our relationship with God. But what happens as you and I are often reading the Quran is anytime there's a mention of God, we kind of slide right past it because we already know, all right, we already know God is forgiving, merciful, greater of all and such. Those are the passages that I want you to focus on. And then everything else is built around those passages. Okay, and so uh, those of you who are willing and able to do the assignment, please do that. Any other last questions? Nothing, inshallah? Okay, very good. So we will stop right here. And then tomorrow, inshallah, we will get to ayah three of Al-Baqarah. Let me just make sure I have gotten everyone's questions. I think we've gotten questions. Okay. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashhadu Allah ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. When it will be like and we turn to you. Okay, Bella Tala, we're you all, and we'll see you inshallah tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.